The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Well, welcome again. Uh, my name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors here with uh, Mike, and actually Scott was up here as well. Uh, three of us serving here with this crew at Artisan. And we're here in the middle of this, this series on prayer. And in fact, you, have a, you actually have a bulletin this week uh, in the retro black and white stylings of the olden days. And you can feel free to, uh, to take notes on that. It does say First Kings. If you go there, uh, you'll be in the wrong part. It's Second Kings. So I just wanted to give you that little heads up. Uh, so that's there in the bulletin. Uh, but if you remember back to when you were about this guy's age, who's waving here in the front, or when you first became a Christian, those who, who are, do you remember how you approached prayer as a child or a relatively new follower of Jesus, those who are Christ followers here? You approached prayer assuming that it mattered, <laughs> that it actually accomplished something, that something took place, that some change could come about because of that. That was just your, your natural assumption. But often at some point, something undoes the, that assumption, makes us doubt whether that's true or not. Could be what Pastor Scott talked about last week, unanswered prayer, comes and challenges that idea. You know, what's going on here? So that's one of the places. But I also think just well-meaning education. The extra learnings we pile on top of things like prayer somehow diminishes our assumption that it actually matters, that it just works. And the longer you're a follower of Jesus, the more you hear all these little sayings and, and theological descriptions that really seem to diminish, you know, this is my opinion, our view of the effectiveness of prayer. And it raises that question that we're tackling today. Does prayer change God? That's quite a, a question there. Does prayer change God? If prayer does change God, what might be at stake? What might be at stake that we aren't comfortable with? Is there anything about prayer changing God that makes anyone a little uncomfortable here? Well, if God changes, you know, is, is he sort of flaky? Is, you know, do you like my mom? You know, it depends on when I get to her and what I ask her. And, uh, is he capricious? Is he not really God? Depending on how you view change and how you view God, that might be a risk. What's at risk if prayer doesn't change God? Why bother? <laughs> what, what exactly are we doing? So... What I'd like you to do is, is, as best as you can, set aside some of the preconceived notions that you may already be trying to answer that question with. And instead, let's just turn to Scripture and see what we might find there. And so if you want to join me, it's in 2 Kings chapter 20. And if you're using the Red Bibles there, it's on page 308. 
So 2 Kings, not 1 Kings, 2 Kings. And I'll just, let's just walk through this, maybe a, a verse or two at a time. But you have to promise me you won't read ahead, okay? You just read the verse and then pencils down, turn over your Bible. So don't read ahead because you'll, you'll ruin it. You'll, you'll ruin the message. You don't want that on your conscience. So 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1. It says, in those days, Hezekiah, he was the king of, uh, of the Israelites, actually the Jude, I believe. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. So let's stop right there. It's quite a declaration from God. Well, we're going to have a peppy message today, aren't we? Uh, you shall die. You shall not recover. Uh, so Hezekiah, here's this news. Uh, and actually, we know from comparing a couple verses there, uh, 2 Kings 18, verse 2, with uh, verse 6 that we'll get to in a moment, that Hezekiah was actually 39 years old. A very, very young guy. Why do I say that? Because I'm 39. And I try to imagine, you know, if the test results came back, if, if the plane was clearly going down, if, if I had a clear word from the Lord that I just knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'd blown out my last candles. You know, this was it. How would that hit me? To not see Jaron and Bryn become adults. To not see them marry godly men and women, have grandkids, to not go into my twilight years uh, with my wife, Lisa, and outlive her um, decades longer, but, but go, <laughs> go way far into our 80s, 90s, and then, uh, you know, to not be part of what God's doing here at Artisan and, and see him multiply things and being part of church planting and those, what would I do? If you heard that word, how would you respond Well, it somewhat depends on your view of God, but maybe that's more so what you'd expect to happen, because I think the natural response, regardless of your theological point of view, would be to cry out. Now, whether you think that's going to make a difference or not goes back to what you believe about God, goes back to that question, does prayer change God? And so, does Hezekiah have a prayer? I mean, God's been very clear, am I right? Well, there's a view of, of God and, and what he knows uh, that we might refer to as the classical view of divine foreknowledge. So, so write that down. No, just remember that. Classical view of divine foreknowledge. And this point of view uh, says that the future is completely settled in God's mind and has been known as such from all eternity. So that's the classical view of divine foreknowledge. And it's been the majority view, we'll say, that most theologians, I suppose, have held that point of view, have taught that point of view throughout church history. Uh, This classical view. But is there any troubling issues that that brings up? That the future is settled in God's mind and has been from all eternity. How does that strike you? 
depending on what you believe about the Bible and, and what awaits us after this life, you might wonder, why would God make people that he knows will spend an eternity separated from him? However you conceive of, of hell, let's agree. It's not a great thing. It's a bad thing. It's apart from God forever. Why would he make people that way? Or why would the scriptures seem to give this, I guess, false hope that God's seeking and searching and drawing people to himself if it's just a foregone conclusion? And then there's some odd scriptures that seem to describe God as changing his mind. and That's just a few of the issues. But for us today, this point of view, this classical view of divine foreknowledge, really begs a question. Why bother to pray? Why bother to pray? And apparently Hezekiah isn't very well versed in the classical view of divine foreknowledge. Or at least it just hasn't sunk in because he foolishly... uh, Well, let's go. Here's verse 2 through 3. It says, And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, Remember now, O Lord, I implore you, how I have walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Well, we know why he's weeping bitterly, right? Nothing's going to change. But he, you know, throws away a prayer anyways because that's what you do. Again, why bother? If it won't make a difference, is it just good to go through the motions? So, What are some common perceptions around prayer that seems to fit this point of view? Anyone heard this one? Kind of raise your hand or nod if you've heard this one. Prayer is simply agreeing with God. Anyone familiar with that one? So prayer is simply agreeing with God. So what Hezekiah needs to work through here is just come to a place, go through the stage of the grief, right, and just get to acceptance and agree with God. So that's one perception of prayer. Uh, Second one. Prayer is for our benefit. You know, it teaches us, it builds character, I I don't know, less cavities, something. It's for our benefit. But here's the kicker. Prayer changes us, not God. Anyone get that one? Yeah, prayer changes us, not God. And so is prayer an empty exercise merely for some educational purposes? I'm going to ask it again. Do your prayers really matter? So Hezekiah, with his, his lack of sophistication here, not knowing you know, all the uh, nuances of of divine foreknowledge or middle knowledge or anyway here's what continues verse 4 through the beginning of 5 remember Isaiah the prophet Isaiah had come into the courtyards and into the into the uh, the castle I don't think it was a castle like with turrets and stuff but came into the uh, into the king's palace there and then in verse 4 it says Before Isaiah 
had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, turn back and say to Hezekiah, prince of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of your ancestor, David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Indeed, I will heal you. Can God do that? Does he not understand the classical view of divine foreknowledge? Well, there's another view of, of these issues surrounding, you know, that, that classic reporter gotcha question. You know, what did God know and when did he know it? You know, what does God know and when did he know it? Well, there's another view that's uh, often referred to as the open view of God in the future. Uh, the open view. It's not to be confused with, uh, so you may be familiar with process theology, which is the idea that God's still sort of working things out. He hasn't quite got it figured out. He's not omniscient, omnipotent, but he's certainly more powerful and more knowing than us. But, you know, he's evolving right along with us. That's process theology. Not at all what I'm talking about. But sometimes those who don't like this point of view want to put it over in that category. It ain't there. But this open view of God in the future, though a minority view, is not without precedent in church history either and some might argue, is in Scripture. But let's just go with the church history thing for a moment. Uh, At least as early as the 5th century, uh, Chalcidius was a a theologian who articulated this idea. Uh, 19th century Methodists, a lot of their thinkers and theologians really developed this quite well. In fact, they had a whole view. Those who are familiar with the Wesleyan stream of thought, Arminianism, that type of stuff, that there's real free will, It's very closely associated with the open view of God. But 19th century Methodists, and then a a fascinating category would be those in the African-American tradition throughout their experience of history here in this country. That when they heard No, this is your lot in life. God made some people to be masters, regular folks, slaves. Some races are better than others. It's just the way it is. And oddly enough, they revolted against that. And there's this wonderful development in African-American theology that has this view, this open view of God. So, So what is it? What is this view? Well, I do want to say this, because this is important. That whether you hold one of these points of view or not, in my opinion, is not a matter of salvation. None of the creeds throughout church history, um, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Definition of Chalcedon, you know, those are ones we use in our membership course here. They don't make a a declaration. They don't make this an article of faith. Um, So, just a little aside there. But this open view, so what is it? Well, the open view of God in the future says that the future is partly determined and foreknown by God as such, but it's also partly open and known by God as such. 
So God's omniscience isn't diminished. He both knows the future in part as closed and in part full of possibilities. In fact, a great book by the title, God of the Possible. Some of what I'm pulling in today is from this author, Greg Boyd. And I highly recommend that. Another closely related one, uh, Case for Free Will Theism. If you're a student at Roberts, either undergrad or graduate level, you may have had uh, Dr. Basinger. He blows your mind uh, with his stuff. But those are two great books. And so Greg Boyd, in this book, God of the Possible, really does a great job of showing this open view, particularly through Scripture. And so what we've come across here in 2 Kings is a category of Bible passages that is kind of a poor fit with a classical view. But what Greg Boyd says is there's these two categories of Bible passages that you can come across that deals with this future, what God knows, when did he know it. One he puts under the heading of the motif of future determinism. You want to say that with me? (laughs) The motif of future determinism, that there's Bible passages that fit in this idea that the future is determined and settled in God's mind, known as such. And the classical view says, yes, these describe God as he is. And the open view looks at those, you know, that motif of future determinism says, yes, these describe God as he is. So, so far, everyone's okay. But then there's the motif of future openness, that there's possibilities, and God knows the future is such that, you know, it's a choose-your-own-adventure. Remember those? (laughs) But not the fake ones that always end you up on page 123 no matter what you're doing. This is a real choose-your-adventure. And the open view says, yes, these also describe God as he is. And the classical view says, No, these are metaphors. These are figures of speech. I ask you, what do you find more satisfying? Do you see any issues there? These describe God as he really is. These, it's a metaphor. You know, it's it's a figure of speech. All right. Well, since we're making stuff up, can it be the other way? Or, if these are figures of speech and are metaphors that, oddly enough, mean exactly the opposite of what the metaphor seems to indicate, then maybe it's all just made up. And I can understand those who don't think Scripture is authoritative and inspired. Why wouldn't you think that when there's, you know, some of it is, some of it isn't, it, you know? I don't find that satisfying. One of the reasons I like this open view. And so how'd this come about? A little bit of history. Well, in the early development of the church, as it was becoming an established kind of, uh, you know, proper religion, Hellenistic philosophy, Platonic dualism, those, if you had your little philosophy classes, you're familiar with some of those terms. You have no idea what they mean, but you're familiar with the terms. so I'm just going to throw them out. Uh, an Aristotelian view of the, of the universe. All that. Anyway, it's the idea that, that God is perfect and unchanging. That is how he is. That, that perfection, unchanging perfection, is the definition of God. 
And that philosophical point of view you understandably influenced some of these theologians because there's lots of verses that seem to go along those lines. But the cultural push, you know, is the thesis of, of this book, and I would agree with that, diminished the view of the other parts of Scripture and said, no, God's unchanging. So you ask, you know, a theologian who's also shaped by this platonic dualism, this Hellenistic philosophy. You say, does prayer change God? They say, of course not. God does not change. And if God changes, he is not God. And since he's God, he does not change. <laughs> See how that goes. The only problem is when, when it goes like that, and then, and then the scriptures never quite make it into that, that bit of circular reasoning there. So here, again, just hear the words of Scripture. Back to 2 Kings chapter 20. We'll start in verse 5 and and now go through to verse 7. God speaks to Isaiah and says, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, prince of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of your ancestor David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, Indeed, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in the city of the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend the city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And then Isaiah said, it's a funny aside here. Then Isaiah said, bring a lump of figs. Let them take it and apply it to the boil so that he may recover. Thus says the Lord. I actually love that that's in there. So apparently there's, as it said, Hezekiah is, is at death's door. He's sick to the point of death, it says. And whether it's, it's cancer or something else, you know, it has these manifestations on his skin, these boils, these lesions. And I just love that prayer matters. God miraculously responds says you'll be healed. And also the best medicine they had, you know, this, this figgy pudding, uh, <laughs> poultice of sorts, applied. There's a lot in there about how we should pray and take advantage of medicine and do all those things. So I love that that's in there as well. So why does this matter? This, uh, this seemingly esoteric way of viewing God. Do you remember when Scott was preaching last week? And those who missed it, you should go back and listen to that one. Talking about unanswered prayer. And, you know, and there's, he had sort of, a, sort of some half solutions that if you put them all together, you sort of got a nine-tenth solution. You know, the math didn't work out great. But you know, they were helpful directions, as Scott said. These don't solve it. But it was you know, how you think theologically about prayer, how you look at prayer scripturally how you look at prayer and the practice of prayer spiritually and, you know, in the, in the trump card. Do you do it in a Jesus-y way, right? Remember that? So this stuff matters. This is a really great companion to, to those ideas. And so here's five. Here's just five very practical differences that how you view God, particularly if you have this open view that the, that the future is partly determined and partly open. Here's why this actually matters. This is... Just as an egghead kind of, you know, esoteric stuff. So, real quickly, 
Here's why this matters. One, I think it's intellectually satisfying. And with this particular congregation, you know, split across two worship gatherings, this part of the Rochester that we're in, uh, the southeast part of Rochester is, has the highest educational rates. Uh, I know many folks here in this room have master's levels, some are pursuing PhDs, and whether you are or not is fine, but very highly educated. And if our hearts and our heads don't agree, faith is weak. I am pretty sure I would not have come to faith in Christ in my teen years if my intellectual issues, such as they were at that you know, ripe age of 13 and 14, um, but if I hadn't read the works of a former atheist, C.S. Lewis, you know, mere Christianity, it had stuff make sense. I don't know. In my continued journey of faith, if it wasn't continually... Um, shored up, if it wasn't vigorous and robust intellectually, oh, there's lots of times I would just bagged it. So I think this point of view is far more intellectually satisfying. Um, I think it makes more sense of our experience of life, of Scripture, and, and other things, which then leads us to the second one. I think it's scripturally coherent. So as someone who holds up Scripture as something that, that I don't read so much as it reads me, that I actually think this is God-breathed, inspired, that it's useful, as it says of itself, useful for teaching, correction, rebuke, that if it's going to be useful, it needs to be coherent. So I'll just throw some verses on the screen. Write them down as fast as you want. But if you only get two or three of these down, go check these out. These are passages that describe God as changing his mind. Even sometimes uses the word that God repented. Get your head around that. These are the scriptures as well. And if we can't make these match with how God doesn't break his promises, how God is love, that those settled ones, so scripturally coherent, it brings greater clarity to God's word instead of confusion and contradictions. Then three, this is one that I personally like scientifically harmonious and I chose my words carefully there scripture's purpose is not to prove scientific points of view science purpose is not to prove how many angels fit on the head of a pin or, or other really important stuff but again if they're not harmonious if all truth is God's truth There ought to be some harmony here. And for the longest time, this classical view that the future is predetermined fit perfectly well into the scientific worldview of of a Newtonian universe. Right? It's it's a clockwork universe. The laws have been set in motion. God wound it up and then just took a big step back, and it's just playing out. And as kids, in our science class, we learn the Newtonian physics, you know, cause and effect, Any problems with basing our theology on Newtonian mechanics? Well, only to the extent that we now know that's not the whole story. (laughs) So Einstein comes along, a few others, and and tells us, you know, there's a lot more going on here. 
So that now, this deterministic view of the world is largely replaced by quantum theory. Did you think you were going to get some quantum physics here when you showed up this morning? But that whole cause and effect thing, whoa, that gets flipped on its head. Uh, How things can be measured, studied, and come to find out in the intrinsic elements of creation is this bit of openness, indeterminism. There's even, uh, I think it's Kevin Kelly and, and others, that talk about how the quantum level, that the best way to describe what those particles do, when, whether they decay or not, or you know, zip right, left, spin one way or the other, that, and you don't really know what they're going to do until you measure them, that the best way to describe what's going on at that level is free will. That at the basic unit of creation, stuff's making choices. And so chaos theory, quantum mechanics, tells us that we can predict to a great degree of certainty general things and a cloud of particles and that stuff. But when you get down to the, to the nitty-gritty, there's this bit of openness. And so whether it's the quantum level, the macro level, or I'm going to make up a word, the supra Super macro level, you know, kind of my, the supernatural. Should it surprise us that those would have some harmony between them? So that's one that I, I particularly like. You can take that one home. Number four. It gives us freedom over fatalism. Freedom over fatalism. The gospel was so well received in the early church or in the world that the early church came into because fatalism ruled the day. The gods are capricious. There's nothing we can do about it. This is my lot in life. Again, master, slave, senator, um, commoner, peasant, royalty. It's just the way it is. And we, they even had great plays about it. You know, someone tried to get away from their fate. What happened? Just like the Godfather got sucked back in, right? When the gospel said, in Christ you are truly free, that was no small word of hope. Well, this fatalism still has a powerful hold on us today. You know, genetic determinism. You know, how how many hugs I got from my dad. Um, You know, I, I have no choices. All those things. And there's genuine, libertarian, real freedom available. I'm not talking political campaign there. Though it may not surprise some of you who are. My preferred political reality is a a state of mild chaos. That's that's not what we're here for. Uh, Freedom from fatalism. You see, if we believe that possibilities are not real that there's not real possibilities, we'll be more inclined to accept things that we could and should revolt against. Conversely, if we believe reality in some part, in some real measure, has possibilities to it, that even God in his sovereignty has opened up possibilities, then we'll be more inclined to live life, to participate to be more adventurous, more passionate, 
to pursue God's kingdom reign breaking through as though this really mattered. Which brings us to the final one that I'll put up here, which speaks to what we're talking about in this series and particularly today, that this view of God in the future brings an urgency to prayer. An urgency to prayer. Many of us don't pray very passionately, if at all, in part because we don't think it really matters. And we may have inadvertently learned that from a well-meaning Sunday school teacher, a well-meaning pastor, well-meaning centuries of theology that were a majority point of view. To be fair, it was. We may have learned it inadvertently when there was that moment when, you know, when someone kind of comforted you why your, why your gramp was dead. Or why bad things happen or or why there's horrible things in the world. Because it's, it's just kind of God's will, and it all, it just is. Prayer changes us, not God. That does not inspire prayer for me. Largely because I don't want to change most days. <laughs> so I need a little more than that. But since some of the future is known by God as open, and its, its outcome then genuinely depends on prayer. Let that sink in. If that's a true point of view, and again, salvation is not dependent on it, I might argue, if it's not true, then I'm just saying what I'm saying because I had to anyways, and none of it matters, but that's just my own kind of smart Alec response to that. It's not 5 p.m. yet. No. <laughs> That's why I always laugh when people get in you know, verbal fistfights over, over this stuff, over whether things are predetermined and predestined. And, and, oh. Why are we fighting again? Oh, that's right, because we have to. Uh, or we don't. Anyway, prayer really matters. And so that question... Does prayer change God? I think so. I don't think it changes his nature. I don't think God becomes less God. I just find the Platonic view, the Hellenistic philosophical view that's been laid on top of Scripture, that does a circular thing that, that perfection, it means unchanging. And since God is perfect, he cannot change. I don't agree with Aristotle and the rest that God is an unmoved mover. I agree with my, uh, one of my profs, again, some of you Robert students, um, Middleton, that he's the most moved mover. He's the father that waits at the end of the road. Because there's a possibility that that prodigal daughter that prodigal son will respond and come back. Our prayers really matter. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. 
Indeed, I will heal you. And so we're going to do something really risky. We're going to trust that this is true. And there's some folks here that don't just need a God who hears their prayers. That's sort of comforting is to know that we have someone who's a good listener. But God being a good listener, that's not always sufficient. I've seen your tears. A God who empathizes. Oh, that's great. But I could use a little more. Indeed, I will heal you. That's the God that Scripture reveals. That's the God that we need. And so, uh, Scott Ashley, uh, if you come up. Scott's one of... uh, Scott is one of your quote-unquote elders. <laughs> yeah, we keep our, our, our elders on the young side here, but uh, uh, that you guys have affirmed. So Scott's on the leadership team. He's, in fact, the chairperson. And he's going to read a, a piece of scripture here that is the call to response. And so, so Scott, would you read that for us? And then, and then I'll explain what we'll do next. Matthew. Or James. Excuse me, James. <clears throat> Uh, Chapter 5, 13 to 16. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of of faith uh, will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. So throughout this week, uh, Scott and Heidi, would you stand up? Heidi's another one of your, she's there in the back. And myself as well. Uh, We actually spent some time praying and fasting uh, on behalf of folks who need healing. And what we want to do is open up this time of, of the service while communion is happening, and really for the rest of the time, I have zero idea. The future is open. I, I don't know. We're going to offer to pray. And here's a place where that can happen, uh, where folks can come up, and whether it's one or a dozen, it's all good. But if you need to have a place to sit, and then uh, Scott and Heidi can kind of talk and see what's going on and what we can pray for. And then I would love to, to actually pray for you. Uh, we have a kneeler back here, and there's something powerful in physically changing your posture and kneeling before God. And just do anointing with olive oil. Pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and just trust God that he will hear and see and indeed bring healing, however that looks. Um, so let me pray for our time now, and then I'll open it up. So God, we do pray that you would hear our cries, that you would see the places of brokenness, and that you would respond with healing. And so we just trust in your scriptures. None of us would claim, certainly on the leadership team, to be righteous in our own self, but it is a righteousness that is only through faith. It is your graceful work and gracious work in our lives 
And so it is a privilege to be in that role of praying for those who need healing. And so I just ask that right now you would give those who need it the courage uh, to come forward for prayer, for prayers for physical healing, for things emotional, for things spiritual, and we will pray. And for those who choose to approach the Lord's table, uh, let that be more than just a, a religious activity as well. But as they tear the piece of bread and dip it in the wine and the juice labeled there, that we take it in as not only spiritual nourishment, but food from healing. That the sacrament will be medicinal. That your broken body and shed blood and your victorious resurrection would be the healing applied in the act of communion. And so we open this time to you now and just ask that you move. Because if your spirit does not move, nothing happens. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So they'll be singing kind of the regular deal. Um, But if anyone wants prayer for healing, uh, I'd ask you to come up. And I'll ask this first. If there'd be one brave person who sort of wants to, if you just stand up and come up, there's a bunch of other people that may not unless they see someone else. Not to put the pressure on. But if the future is open you could have a role in some of that outcome. So we'll be up here, ready and willing to pray with you. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.